Welcome to the Story Scribe Podcast, the place in which we talk about stories, whether they are in books, on screen, over a speaker, or around a table. I'm your host, Blake Oliver. Today's episode is called Nationalism and the Other in a Game of Thrones. It is the first chapter of my dissertation, uh, so we're falling into that category of episode of uh, story and academia that I mentioned in the last episode. This is also the first episode of the real season as we are starting up. Uh, So this is hopefully going to be a monthly process now. I'm hoping I've ironed out all the bugs and uh, let's get going. The A Song of Ice and Fire fantasy series by George R. R. Martin has become a cultural phenomenon since its first novel, A Game of Thrones, was published in 1996. The novel received the Locus Award for Best Fantasy Novel in 1997. The series has become the basis for a popular television series and sold more than 70 million copies. This popularity spreads the message of the novel among its readers, including messages about nationalist rhetoric being used to other. In A Game of Thrones, the free folk north of the Wall, a barrier made of ice and stone which crosses the northern horizon of the continent of Westeros, are depicted as a dangerous other, mirroring nationalistic rhetoric in which immigrants are criminals through the character of Osha, the discourse of othering around the free folk is challenged. From the very beginning of the novel, George R. R. Martin's A Game of Thrones shows a land beyond the civilization of the Seven Kingdoms of Westeros north of the Wall. This landscape is populated by wildlings, and the border is patrolled and guarded by a force of men called the Night's Watch. While the Night's Watch had originally formed to protect the kingdoms from a different enemy, the Undead Others, capital O, this enemy is long forgotten for the more immediate enemy the wildlings seeking to cross the wall into Westeros. That the others, capital O, have been long forgotten is evident from the behavior of the characters who are concerned primarily with events south of the wall and their lack of concern or outright mockery of the Night's Watch. The only character who believes the ancient myths is Old Nan, the caretaker for the Stark family children at their home in Winterfell. Old Nan's voice reverberates through the children as knowledge, though it is initially depicted by other adults as merely stories. Old Nan's existence within the text seems to remind the reader that there is power and importance to myths and legends. The stories told about the world to understand it. A Game of Thrones is told from different perspectives, each character focusing on a separate plot. Two of these plots are told from the perspective of children Nan helped raise and show the falsehoods around othering and the existence of a greater evil than the human other. In 1970s America, a popular consensus began to emerge that there was a crisis of immigration. 
although it was more of a crisis of political reaction to immigrants and minorities than about the management of migrant migration flows. The shift in rhetoric and policy which took place in the 1990s as a reaction to the illegal immigration across its southern border may have had a part to play in the depiction of the wildlings in A Game of Thrones. According to Seth M. Holmes, research on the U.S.-Mexico border, uh, this period of time saw changes to border policy in the United States called prevention through deterrence, which involved intentionally redirecting migrants to more dangerous remote areas, including the area referred to by the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol as the Corridor of Death, and is believed by scholars to be directly responsible for an increase in border deaths. According to another scholar on migration, Martin Baldwin Edwards, the fight against illegal immigration primarily comes from nationalistic political discourses, which are ideological rather than pragmatic. Meta narratives defining an us against a them. According to medieval historian Carolyn Larrington, Martin's idea of the wall originated during a trip to Hadrian's Wall, built to keep the the bloodthirsty Scots and Picts out of the northernmost part of the Roman Empire. Fantasy scholar Brian Atterbury suggests that fantasy is fundamentally playful, which does not mean that it is not serious. It's way of playing with symbols and encourages readers to see meaning as something unstable and elusive rather than single and self-evident. An American author writing during a time in which policy surrounding illegal immigration from Mexico is increasing visits an ancient Roman wall used as a hard border and develops the idea for the wall, capital W, as a device to play with the idea of hard borders and othering. The play, quote-unquote, of using an enormous wall made of ice and stone enables symbolism for shatter zones between nations, where the worldview of the novel is challenged, is in the new understandings gained by the characters Bran Stark and Jon Snow. As Atterbury states in Stories About Stories, progress, class struggle, manifests destiny, anything that imposes direction and a purpose on historical change is a story concocted by humans. Some of these stories are destructive. None are inevitable. The best counter is an alternative story. The alternative story within Game of Thrones invites the reader to consider that the free folk, called wildlings and vilified as they are by those in the Seven Kingdoms, are not the true threat, exemplified through Jon Snow's encounter with the White Walkers and Bran Stark's encounter with the character Osha. Migration scholar Robin Cohen suggests that the real world nationalist rhetoric attempts to separate the people of a nation from outsiders by demeaning the outsiders. By suggesting that members of the other were incapable of change, they cease to be amenable to reason and become unable to change, adapt, or assimilate. This premise is a justification for the prologue, or from the prologue of the novel, to kill wildlings. But it is disproven by the behavior of Osha, a wildling woman who is captured by the Starks south of the Wall as she flees the greater threat, the undead Others, capital O. While she enters the Seven Kingdoms as a raider, she integrates into the society of Winterfell. As one of the only representations of the Free Folk, she is the representation of their humanity. The character of Osha proves that, 
though the culture of the Seven Kingdoms considers the wildlings to be irredeemably other, the wildlings seek only to survive. The need for survival requires the wildlings to flee an evil which surpasses any difference between her people and those within the Seven Kingdoms. When the reader opens Game of Thrones, one of the first things that they will notice are the four maps at the beginning of the novel, depicting the world within. For the purposes of this chapter, the most important map is The Land Beyond the Wall, on page III. Literary scholar Kate Marshall describes Martin's use of these maps as his participating in two novelistic traditions that he often claims are crucial to the formation of his fiction. The most obvious, of course, is the tradition of fantasy writing that declares its stylistic depths to realism through devices such as intricately drawn maps of the spaces traversed throughout the action of the fiction. These are possible worlds within strict or with strict boundaries. These maps are used in fantasy as evidence of an alternative world. While the novel novels discussed in later chapters have different methods of world building, Martin begins ev uh, with evidence akin to realism. While there is no scale, the wall clearly spreads horizontally from one end of the continent to the other and is given a wide berth by the rest of civilization. In comparing the Seven Kingdoms to the Romans and subsequent civilizations of Britain, historian Ayelet Heimsen Lushkov writes that the demarcation of the supernatural follows in the tradition of Roman ethnography, a common place of writing wherein the author deviates from the regular plot to describe a particular place, its geography, and its inhabitants. The ancients believed that the geography and weather patterns of a place influenced the character and physical build of its inhabitants, so it was important to know the lay of the land in order to know what kind of people lived there. While the map of the south shows lands filled with settlements with idyllic names such as Starfall, Brightwater Keep, and Pink Maiden, the map of the north shows a sparser place with harsher names, the Dreadfort, Winterfell, Last Hearth. This follows the Roman tradition of ethnographic writing in which they proceeded from civilization into the wild so that they become less and less normal as they went. There are almost no settlements in the land beyond the wall, the only exceptions being Craster's Keep and Hardhome. The rest of the map is dominated by the Haunted Forest, the Frost Fangs, and Thin Mountain Ranges, the Shivering Sea, and the Land of Always Winter, which as unmapped creates the impression that no one from the novel's civilization has ever journeyed so far north and lived. Before the novel begins, the land beyond the wall is depicted as a harsh and unsettled land. This map is the first insight the reader has into the Seven Kingdoms' view of wildlings, a people so uncivilized that they lack settlements as they seek to survive in their frigid landscape. There is such a fear about the land beyond the wall and the people who live there that the lands which border the wall are, almo are mostly unsettled. 
It is only once the stretch of land called the Neck is crossed that the people of the Seven Kingdoms appear confident in settling in greater numbers. This treatment is described by historian Caroline Larrington as taking the idea of ethnography farther to create the realm of the uncanny, the land of ice, a place where the old ways prevail, where the stuff of old Nan's stories is both true and real, and where the customs and beliefs of the rest of Westeros seem to find no purchase. It is for this reason that the wall was created to protect the Seven Kingdoms from the true terrors of the Far North, the capital O Others. However, in the millennia since its construction, the histories which Old Nan's stories are based on have become myth, and the danger of the North is instead ascribed to the savage wildlings. According to historian Brian DeRuder, sociologists use this term, Other, to describe how societies and individuals represent their own self-identities as normal and correct, but that of other social groups and persons as abnormal and deviant. This distinction often leads to discrimination and hostility. The fear of the Scottish Other caused the Romans to build Hadrian's Wall, the fear of the Mexican Other caused U.S. border policy uh, change, and the fear of the wildling other is what is believed to be the cause of the wall's construction. The truth is forgotten due to time and lost belief, as evidenced in the history of Westeros. The others have not shown themselves in thousands of years, if indeed they ever existed. Instead of its true purpose, the wall takes on a more nationalist symbolism as a hard border against the barbarians beyond it. Robin Cohen says in studying migration that it is not required that the barbarians accept the us-them label for the distinction to work. The difference may be arbitrary or fictive. It is enough that we have set up boundaries for us, for them to become they. They have a culture or an identity incompatible with ours. In Martin's companion text, written in the character of a maester, uh, the land beyond the wall is considered lawless, and the separation between the wildlings and the seven kingdoms as necessary. Their pride in their poverty, in their stone axes and wicker wood shields, and in their flea-infested pelts, is part of the reason they are set apart from the people in the seven kingdoms. The wildlings are declared as others, and the actions of the few who cross the border enforce the message, causing the wildlings to be perceived as so other that it would not be considered out of character for their women to lay with the capital O others in the long night to sire terrible half-human children. This ultimate sin adds a mythical enmity from before the construction of the wall itself, and, while many in the Seven Kingdoms may not believe in the stories of the White Walkers, adds an additional argument for the continued eradication of any wildlings who near or cross the Wall. The fact that the wildlings are, by name, wild, means that they cannot be accepted into the civilized society of the Seven Kingdoms. We'll be right back. 
It is the concept of otherness which is examined as Martin writes about the wildlings. The wall, from the first maps of the novel, dictate that there are outsiders who are a threat to the nation of the Seven Kingdoms. An important aspect of borders defined in Gary D. Keller's research on representation of the U.S.-Mexican border is how it places into contact one of the most developed countries in the world with a poor country, qualifying it as a shatter zone, an area where the culture is the result of the often troubled relationship of unequal partners. The reality of shatter zones is mirrored in Martin's novel through the use of the wall to separate the impoverished, nomadic free folk from the rest of Westeros. Writing in the 1990s, Martin reflects the concept of real-world shatter zones in creating the worldview around the people north of the wall, the misperception of the wildlings as the greatest threat to the Seven Kingdoms. The differences between the Wall, capital W, and real-world borders, particularly the elements of the fantastic, allow for the rhetoric of strong national borders to be examined. While it is clear that Martin borrows from real-world history and realism to build the world of his novel series, an important question is, in a world of magic and dragons, how do people forget that the true danger north of the Wall is not human others, but the capital O others? the monstrous undead? The first answer to this question comes from the subgenre elements of low fantasy for having little or no magic. The rare magical elements of the novel, undead armies and the birth of dragons, take place mostly in the fringes of society. It is due to this distance that the people of the Seven Kingdoms are able to make magic into myth. The second answer comes from realistic historicism. According to the learned Master Lewin, Castle Winterfell's tutor, doctor, and scribe, the history of Westeros begins when, some 12,000 years ago, the first men appeared from the east. They came with bronze swords and great leathern shields riding horses. These men with bronze swords are the Roman equivalent and built the wall to keep out the capital O, others, called the White Walkers by the Free Folk. But the first men were not the last to come to Westeros. Just as the Romans, who built Hadrian's Wall, were not the last to invade England, the next invaders were the Andals, the equivalent for the Vikings, a race of tall, fair-haired warriors who came with steel and fire and the seven-pointed star of the new gods painted on their chest. After this, the Targaryens came to Westeros with dragons to conquer the lands. While the dragons are remembered, these violent changes in rulership are evidently the cause of the loss of the Wall's true purpose. The Wall's existence denotes an existing threat. It is here the wildlings are considered the primary threat beyond the border. The wildlings are the other who can be seen instead of the capital O others who cannot and become myth. While the Stark family and the people of the North believe in the importance of the Wall, the further south one goes, however, the less convinced the King and Lords become of the urgency or national importance of the Watch's task. They therefore increasingly use the Wall as a dumping spot for the criminal and the poor, a combination of murderers and rapists, as well as perpetuate or perpetrators of small-time crimes driven by hunger and desperation. Opening the novel with Men of the Night's Watch and the subsequent fixation on that brotherhood by protagonists John Stone, 
Jon Snow and Bran Stark, shows that the wildlings are considered to be the greatest threat to the society of the Seven Kingdoms. The prologue, before the rest of the novel can obfuscate the, the fact, works to reveal the true danger of the capital O Others over the wildlings. The Brothers of the Night's Watch begin the novel by hunting wildlings bef before being ambushed by the undead. This event is ignored and forgotten as the lone survivor is considered a madman and beheaded by Lord Eddard Stark, the father of John and Bran, for deserting his post as a ranger in the Night's Watch. This is considered especially grievous because the primary force of the Night's Watch's border patrol is the rangers. Every man who wore the black walked the wall, and every man was expected to take up steel in its defense, but the rangers were the true fighting heart of the Night's Watch. It was they who dared ride beyond the wall, sweeping through the haunted forest and the icy mountain heights west of the Shadow Tower, fighting wildlings and giants and monstrous snow bears. To guard against the wildlings is considered a matter of national security and the very ethos of justice. To defend against the barbaric wildlings who refuse to bow to the throne of Westeros and only want to kill and steal. And yet, in living at the Wall, the men of the Night's Watch become harsh as well in the isolation and cold. Brother Donald Noy explains to John that or what it means to be a man of the Night's Watch as he struggles with his experiences of his idolized knightly order. Yes, cold and hard and mean. That's the wall and the men who walk it. Not like the stories your wet nurse told you. It is unclear if living on the border changes the men, reinforcing the climate as an interpreting factor of the inhabitants, as the Romans wrote in their ethnographies, or if the fact that many of them were criminals sent to serve as punishment is the reason the watch is filled with such brutal men defending civilization against brutal others. The rhetoric around the wildling other is not hard to reinforce as the wildlings who venture south of the wall are raiding. The first wildlings described for the reader comes from one of their raiding parties meeting Bran out in the forest, alone. Halfway through the novel, Rob Stark, another of Bran's brothers, and the other hunters from their home of Winterfell leave Bran to chase a stag. When he heard the rustle of leaves, Bran used the reins to make Dancer turn, expecting to see his friends, but the ragged men who stepped out onto the bank of the stream were strangers. Bran, in recognizing their otherness, is afraid. While the fear of wildness, wildlings is perpetuated most by the John chapters, it is Bran who meets the first wildlings of the Song of Ice and Fire series. One look and Bran knew they were neither foresters nor farmers. He was suddenly conscious of how richly he was dressed. Bran's fear is justified from the stories Old Nan told him. Just as raiding occurred across Hadrian's Wall, the wildlings conduct raids in the north, plundering, abducting females, and acquiring the metal necessary for their weapons. From the stories he has been told, it is no surprise that Bran Stark is apprehensive of the raiding party. He is proven right when the wildlings begin to rob him, threaten him, and discuss kidnapping him. 
The wildlings make for an ideal other for the culture of the Seven Kingdoms, with the lack of recognized civilization, overt violence, and an ancient mythical grudge. The pre-existence of a hard border between the wildlings and the Seven Kingdoms allows for a nationalist narrative of keeping the undesirables out and an unchallenged rhetoric depicting them as barbarians needing eradication. However, rhetoric about the wildlings is challenged through Bran's encounter with his first raiding band. While they do attempt to rob him, threaten him, and kidnap him, Bran hears the discussion of their reasons for going south. The wildlings are fleeing the White Walkers, marching in the land beyond the Wall. This is the first indication that, though the people south of the Wall have believed the wildlings to be allied to the others, capital O, that myth is false. The wildlings are as afraid of the others, capital O, as the people of the Seven Kingdoms ought to be. While most of these raiders are killed in a fight with Rob Stark, who comes to rescue his little brother, the wildling survivor, Osha, is the character who shows Bran that the wildlings are not mere barbarians. On Osha's first sighting, Bran considers her appearance as other. She scarcely looked like a woman, tall and lean, with the same hard face as the others, her hair hidden beneath a bowl-shaped half-helm. The spear she held was eight feet of black oak, tipped in rusted steel. While she is the first to suggest using Bran as a hostage, she is also the only one of her group who surrenders. She describes the plight of herself and her deceased comrades as a forced migration or migration that results from some sort of compulsion or threat to well-being or survival, emerging in conditions ranging from violent conflicts to severe economic hardship. The act of venturing south is not depicted by Osha as an act of greed or bloodlust, but of survival from a greater threat beyond the wall. Osha's for forced migration mirrors situations in the real world in which it is not the decisions of individuals to migrate, but the issues which forced, from, uh, for <laughs> forced them from their home to survive. Due to the wildlings being depicted as having a lack of humanity, there is a temptation to reciprocate a lack of humanity. When deliberating what to do with Osha in her surrender, Theon Greyjoy, ward of the Starks, urges, give her to the wolves to be eaten alive. The Starks do not agree. While there is a pretense that she is to be taken back to Winterfell for questioning, there is a sense that this is an overture for sparing her life as Bran can see the relief on Rob's face. Osha, as a forced migrant surrendering to Stark forces, is pleading for safe refuge. The reaction of Theon unsettles the Starks, who act as a moral compass for the reader in Westeros, because to turn away someone who surrenders would betray a deep moral code that nobility ought to behave by, regardless how that code is ignored by other nobles. Whatever moral superiority Theon would claim before is undercut by his treatment of a now defenseless woman. Instead of being thrown to the wolves, Osha is put into the service of the Starks at Winterfell. Over time, Osha is more recognizable as a person, less like an other, from her time in Winterfell. Her hair was growing out brown and shaggy. It made her look more womanly, that and the simple dress of brown... 
uh, home ruffs button they'd given her when they took her mail and leather. Osha conforms more to the idea of what a woman looks like in the Seven Kingdoms, beginning the process of integration, defined as the process by which immigrants gain social membership and develop the ability to participate in key institutions in the destination country. She works within the castle walls as an imprisoned laborer, but increasingly earns freedoms as she proves her trustworthiness. Though she has been treated as other before, as an outsider and a threat, Osha gains social membership and therefore security from the White Walkers in the community. Sir Roderick had ordered Osha's chain struck off since she had served faithfully and well since she had been at Winterfell. She still wore the heavy iron shackles around her ankles, a sign that she was not yet wholly trusted, but they did not hinder her sure strides. However, Osha has not assimilated, defined as the process by which immigrants become similar to natives, leading to the reduction or possibly the disappearance of ethnic difference between them. Osha does not seek to become similar to the natives of Winterfell and takes pride in the ethnic differences between herself and the people south of the Wall, including knowledge of ancient history, her worship of the old gods, and personal independence. The lack of change in Osha shows that she does not gain humanity by entering civilization, but had it before. Osha loses her otherness not from changing setting, but from familiarity. Bran values Osha's knowledge of the world. She tells him what became of the non-human races during a history lesson when Maester Lewin's knowledge seems to fail and claims a deeper connection to the old gods he worships. They are my gods too. Beyond the wall, they are the only gods. The more Bran listens to Osha, the more he begins to believe that some of the stories of Old Nan are true, that there is a greater evil beyond the wall than the wildlings. As Osha tells him, giants, and worse than giants, Lordling. The cold winds are rising, and men go out from their fires and never come back. Or if they do, they're not men no more, but only whites, with blue eyes and cold black hands. Why do you think I run stout with Stiv and Holly and the rest of them fools? The more time Bran spends with Osha, the more the differences between them seem superficial or of no importance. This builds a relationship between the two as Osha comes to care for Bran and his little brother Rickon, and they for her. It is during this conversation with Osha that Bran he hears the wildlings do not call themselves that name, but prefer the name the Free Folk. As mentioned before, the term barbarian does not have to be accepted by the people group labeled with it, and in this same way, even the term wildling indicates a savage and is not accepted by the people north of the Wall. This name, used since the beginning of the novel, instantly labels those beyond the Wall as an other to the culture of the Seven Kingdoms. While this has been used to lead the people of the Seven Kingdoms to fear the Free Folk, Bran's time with Osha reveals the humanity denied by the rhetoric. Osha's integration into the society of Winterfell proves that the claims against the wildlings are not entirely true, that they are not a people of barbaric intentions as much as their intentions are to survive.
Osho warns that the true threat to Westeros is the others kept below. The undead White Walkers who murder the living to grow their army. The citizen of the Seven Kingdoms who is still willing to keep the wildlings out must also be willing for them to die and become part of a worse enemy army. The first sign the men of the Night's Watch have that something is wrong north of the Wall is when they find two of their brothers dead, Othor and Jaffer. They are unnatural, or there are unnatural aspects of the body reminiscent of the prologue. The dead white face stared up at the overcast sky with blue, blue eyes, and that the animals, including the horses, do not like being near these bodies. While there is a brief investigation, the men from the Seven Kingdoms would rather attribute the deaths to the wildlings than the White Walkers. This is because the men of the White's, of, of the Night's Watch do not want to admit that a myth could be true. John could have told him he knew, they all knew, yet no man of them would say the words, the others are only a story, a tale to make children shiver. If they ever lived at all, they are gone 8,000 years. Even the thought made him feel foolish. The saying of the Starks, winter is coming, appears to be coming true, but the winter coming is not a mere change in the season. It is an apocalyptic event. The only chance of surviving this coming winter is in the myths that they have been told. When John is awoken to find the corpse of Othor, or that the corpse of Othor has come alive and is attempting to attack Lord Commander Mormont in his sleep, the ensuing fight appears fruitless until he remembers Old Nan's stories that the undead are vulnerable to fire. John successfully defeating Othor, the other, prompts Mormont to admit, We ought to have known. We ought to have remembered. The long night has come before. Oh, eight thousand years is a good while, to be sure. Yet if the Night's Watch does not remember, who will? As this danger has already been witnessed by the reader in the prologue alluded to by Osha and now confirmed by the Night's Watch, it is clear that the fate of anyone north of the Wall is to be killed and become an undead reaver. For the Night's Watch to continue to focus on the Wildlings as the primary threat is to doom them to the fate of becoming White Walkers, increasing the threat of an undead army to preserve the rhetoric of othering. The Free Folk, already recognizing the White Walker threat, see the dangers of border crossing in a similar way to modern illegal migrants crossing the U.S.-Mexican border as studied by Seth M. Holmes. In this context, crossing the border is not a risk-producing choice, but rather a lack of choice, a determined process necessary to survive. In fact, making life less risky. It is for this reason that they seek to cross the border, either in small bands or with the gathered army under Mance Raider. This problem, currently contained in the farthest reaches beyond the wall, is foreshadowed as the true threat of the series. Atterbury asserts that any theory which deals with fantasy texts, like A Game of Thrones, must recognize three aspects of fantasy. The first is that it is a revival of archaic narrative forms, like the myth. The second is that it challenges the notion that literature is representational as allegory. 
The third is that narrative sequence is a neutral structure which provides important elements like character portrayal or societal analysis. In looking at a Game of Thrones as a cultural production which comments on the construction of the other in its world building, all three aspects of Atterbury's requirements are met. The novel creates and recreates cultural myths, borrowing from myths of supernatural threats. What it does differently, however, is depict a fantasy world in which the myths are not treated with serious thought. This ignorance causes magical problems to be ignored for the visible threat of the free folk. While they are hated for being violent raiders, their actual goal, as depicted by Osha, is survival from an evil mythological force. Considering the depth Martin borrows from myth, history, and real-world meta-narratives, Game of Thrones is able to play with rhetoric around shatter zones and othering. The method of telling the story from multiple perspectives reflects the real world by showing the divided priorities of the people of Westeros and allowing for important issues to go unresolved or, worse, unacknowledged. Only two characters, Bran and Jon, gain an understanding of the threat beyond the wall, while the rest are distracted with politics. The serial nation or nature of A Song of Ice and Fire depicts a complex world with complex problems. As the first novel closes, the issue of the others goes unresolved, ensuring that the threat will worsen as it is ignored. A foreboding message if applied to reality, if threats which force migrants from their homes are also unresolved. While some literary cri critics may refuse the possibility that a work of fantasy can do resilient cultural work, speculative fiction is able to capture the imagination in ways other literature cannot. The distance Game of Thrones has from reality allows for an easier philosophical discussion of practical ideas as they are enacted in created worlds. In a time period when the United States was purposefully making the crossing of their southern border more difficult, Martin published a work which depicted the outsider as human. Whatever faults can be attributed to the free folk, the character Osha shows the reader that the motivations are the human pursuit of survival. Osha's humanity challenges the novel's worldview of otherness and allows for real-world meta-narratives to be analyzed through that challenge. So that was chapter one of my dissertation, which I worked very hard on and got a master's in literature and culture from. So if you found that this chapter was hard to follow because you didn't have the theory that is already in a past episode, I probably should have told you at the top. Uh, so go back and listen to the introduction to my dissertation. It covers the some of the theories within speculative fiction writing and understanding. Uh, if you liked this idea, please listen to the next episode as it is about American Gods by Neil Gaiman. The chapter will be uh, The Expectation of Assimilation in American Gods. Uh, and if you enjoyed this episode, share it out, please. Uh, I would love to find out that there are other people who care about stories as much as I do. Please give me uh, a like, subscribe, and all of those sorts of good things. And I hope to hear from you. Thank you.